we blessed or what? Just waiting sometimes in his presence. We are so rushed. Even in worship sometimes we can rush through worship. We're worshiping the Lord and we don't sit. When we finally get in the presence of God, don't you just want to dwell there and sit and remain there? And we're so blessed that um, Christina is in tune to the Spirit of God where we can sit and dwell in his presence. I feel like the the um, veil has been torn, and we were ushered into his presence this morning. What a blessing, and, um, and uh, wow, I could just sit there. I'm, I could have just gone on and on for the next 45 minutes with her. Um, maybe we should do that. No. <laughs> we have a great uh, chapter before us this morning, very uh, weighty. Actually, I was supposed to be in Brazil with John. Uh, and um, and June was supposed to be here. When she found out she wasn't teaching this, she was whew, thrilled. <laughs> I said, I'll be there. She said, I'm so glad because that's a, that's a rough chapter. But um, I told her I'm... I love the challenge in the scripture. I will take it because I want to learn and I want to grow and I want to dig and I want to see what the Lord has for us in the word. And if I'm not being challenged, how can you ladies be challenged as well? So I told her I will take the challenge of Hebrews 10 and boy, did I um, enjoy it. And I was challenged myself. But um, John's in Brazil. Uh, There was an outbreak of yellow fever and our daughter was supposed to go with us. So we felt that it would be best because 75 people have died in the city that we were traveling to, that it would be better if we did not go this trip. So even though I'm sad not to teach the women there in Brazil, um, I've been wanting and waiting to go, uh, we felt like this would be the best for my daughter and myself. So John finally made it. It's a long flight. He made it. He's there. And so if you would pray for him for the next six days, he's teaching a lot at this conference. Um, but I know that people have been um, very blessed with him in the past and um, in the future. So we share him. We share our pastor uh, joyfully around the world and around the country um, so that other people can be as blessed as we are. So would you join me right now and let's pray for him. Lord, we do love you and praise you and thank you for our pastor, God, and we ask that you would go before him, you would prepare the ways that he's to walk in, that you would strengthen him physically, Lord, uh, as he's had a long flight, and um, that you would strengthen him spiritually, God, that you would be his strength, Lord, that he would depend solely upon you, that you would give him the messages and the words that these people need um, for such a time as this, God. And so we we ask that you would fill him with your spirit, that you would anoint him for service. In Jesus' name, amen. And, um, and let's pray for us. Lord, we do pray for us as well, God, that you would give us your words on our heart, God, that you would enlighten us in your scriptures even now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I said, this has been a great study this week, uh, and really this year so far. I mean, who doesn't want a study that just keeps reminding us that Jesus is better? I mean, it's just wonderful. But it's been great to learn in what ways 
is Jesus better? We know from the beginning he's better than the angels. He's better than the law. He's better than the um, Levitical priesthood. We learn that as well. Um, he's better last week than the sanctuary. He provides, I should say, a better sanctuary. And this week we're going to learn that he provides a better sacrifice. So will you open your Bibles to chapter 10? And while you're doing that, I'm going to tell you a story of a teenage boy whose mother was away as he found himself with some time on his hands. He went to his mom's library, and um, she was a devout Christian. So he pulled a book from her library shelf, and he began to read it. While reading the book, he came across the phrase, the finished work of Christ. He wondered why the author would use this expression. You see, the teenage boy was not yet born again. He was ignorant of the simple truth that Jesus finished or he completed the work on the cross, and we cannot or need not even add to it. Within a moment, this young teenager remembered uh, the words, it is finished in the scriptures. And he had what we would call an aha moment. Right then and there, it clicked for him. He realized what had kept him from Jesus in the past was trying to work for salvation, trying to be good enough, trying to do enough, trying to complete the work that was finished. If a work is finished, there's nothing to do. It's completed. It's finished. And this young man had an aha moment in his mother's library and fell to his knees and asked Jesus Christ to be his Lord and Savior. And that man was Hudson Taylor the founder of the Inland Mission, who would dedicate his life to sharing the love of Jesus with the country of China. He would bring 800 missionaries to China, start 125 schools, and see over 18,000 conversions. No other missionary since the Apostle Paul had a wider vision and carried out a broader evangelical span than Hudson Taylor. Hebrews 10 is a chapter that emphasizes the complete, the perfect work of Jesus Christ in contrast to the incomplete work of the Old Covenant. Perfect means ideal, model, faultless, flawless, and complete. The work of Jesus was and is flawless. It is ideal. It is complete. This completeness is the theme of our chapter today, where the writer points out for us three reasons why the sacrifice of Jesus is better than that of the old sacrificial system. Let's look beginning with verse 1. It says, For the law having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of things, can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshipers, once purified, would have no more consciousness of sin. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Therefore... 
When he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offerings you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifice for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the volume of the book, it is written of me to do your will, O God. Previously saying, Sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin, you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which were offered according to the law. Verse 9. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, to take away the first that he may establish the second. By that will be have been sacrificed through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. The first reason why Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is better is because, if you're taking notes, it takes away sin. Sin is man's biggest problem. It's what separates us from God. No matter what religion or belief you have, sin must always be dealt with. By nature, we as men and women are sinners. And by choice, we prove that we, our nature is actually sinful. It's been said, we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. Romans 3.23 reminds us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And Romans 5.19-21 encourages us in that, For as by one man disobedience, one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord." Jesus did what the law could not do. We've established that. He finished the work once and for all. He was the final and the perfect sacrifice. He was flawless and blameless. Where the law, we're told, was a shadow of things to come, Jesus was the fulfillment of the law. He met all the qualifications and all of the requirements. In every way. The old sacrificial system was established to meet the needs for a time. It was temporary and never meant to become permanent. The repetition of the sacrifices day after day and year after year pointed out the weakness of the sacrificial system. Animal sacrifices could not take away human guilt. Only Jesus was able to do that as he offered his body for forgiveness of our sins once and for all. The old system of animal sacrifices could only go so far. It covered sin, but it couldn't take it away. Only Jesus could do that. It really was the band-aid where Jesus was the Neosporin. <laughs> My mom always used to say she called Neosporin uh, magic medicine. Like you put it on and it takes it away. It just takes your boo-boo away. And so uh, it fights, fights the infection, takes it away. It was the magic medicine growing up. You know, whenever we scraped our knee or something, 
she would go get the magic medicine, and that was Neosporin. So uh, Jesus is our Neosporin. If you remember anything that uh, <laughs> I say today, remember that. That's a good one. So verse 5 through 10 is a quote from Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8, and applies to the incarnation of Jesus when Jesus came into the world. He left heaven and came into the world as man. The quotation makes it clear that Jesus is the fulfillment of the old covenant sacrifices. We as believers are to be set apart by the sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross. We are cleansed of our sins, forgiven, and that's what makes Jesus' sacrifice better. In addition to taking away our sins, the second reason that Jesus' sacrifice is better because it does away with repetition. Verse 11 through 18, the writer contrasts now the old covenant, the high priest with that of Jesus, our great high priest. Verse 11 says, and every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God from that time now waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. We see here that Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Father, proving that his work was complete. In contrast, the ministry of the priests in the tabernacle and the temple, there was never, we know, a chair there. Why? Because they never sat down. Why? Because the um, sacrificial, the sacrifice, the sacrificial system was never complete. It, was, it wasn't finished. It was repeated day after day, year after year. So they never were able to sit down. But Jesus finished the work on the cross once and for all, and he got to heaven, and what did he do? He sat down at the place of honor, the right hand of the Father. The constant repetition for the sacrificial system was proof proof that the sacrifices that they offered were indeed unable to take away sin. It could cover it. It was temporary. It met the need for a time, but it was never meant to be permanent. It was never able to be complete. Psalm 110.1 says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. When Jesus returns, he will overcome every enemy and he will establish his kingdom. And as verse 14 reminds us, we have no need to fear for he has perfected forever and is perfecting us. We are complete in him. We see here three important words in these verses. There, of course, the word sat, I highlighted in my Bible, waiting and perfected. Jesus' work, as we said, is done. So he sat down, but he's waiting for the time that he gets to come back and establish his kingdom here on earth. And while we wait 
as well for his return, the rapture of the church, the time that Jesus will come and get us um, if he tarries and we're alive still at that time. Until then, while we wait, we're told that he is doing something in us. What is he doing? He's perfecting us. He's sanctifying us. And we know that sanctification is a fancy word to saying that he's working in our lives. He's making us, molding us, shaping us more and more like him each day. So while we wait and he waits, we're in a process of sanctification. We get saved and we have conversion, but then sanctification is this lifelong process of becoming more and more like Jesus until he makes us perfect and complete, and that won't happen until we're with him. We are being transformed into the very image of Jesus, much like the caterpillar turns into the butterfly. We lose arms and we lose legs and we lose layers of skin until we emerge from that cocoon as a beautiful butterfly that is able to, um, to fly above the things that maybe um, concerned us before. You know, the Lord allows us and uses that illustration, I believe, for us to relate to. We, we, we know the process of metamorphosis, right? We see it. We, we study it. We're in awe of it. But that's the same process that the Lord is doing in our own lives. We are being perfected, ladies, and we have a perfect God that is doing it for us. Amen. Not based upon our work or anything we can do, but based upon the finished work of Jesus Christ. So, how do we do this? Verse 15 tells us. We can't do it. Someone else does it for us. Verse 15 says, by the witness of the Holy Spirit through the word. The witness of the Holy Spirit is based upon the work of the Son and is given to us through the scriptures. In verse 16 and 17, the writer quotes Jeremiah 31, 33 through 34, saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their heart and in their minds. I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now, where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering of sin. This is something that those under the old sacrificial system could not say. They couldn't say that their sins were forgiven, they were covered, and their conscience, though, was not Cleansed, And that's the thing, one of the big things that's different between the sacrificial system and Jesus' perfect sacrifice on the cross. You know, when we ask for forgiveness of our sins and we get saved, we are told in Scripture that the Lord has cast our sin how far? As far as the east from the west. And that, it's, the east and the west never meet. The, the idea is that it's, it's gone. It's forgotten. It's covered. It's done. And even though the Lord forgives us and forgets, who reminds us of our sins? The enemy, Right? And I really believe that that is one of the major repercussions of sinning. I mean, if we um, who have lived longer could impart any wisdom into younger people, it would be 
stay as far from sin as possible. Not that uh, many of us don't have to learn the hard way, but you learn and you're forgiven, but you always remember. We remember. Um, and, and I truly believe that the Lord can dim our consciousness. That as we pray, and, we, and that's something I did for years, I asked the Lord, Lord, wipe this from my memory. It's, it's wiped from yours, but I still remember it. And the enemy who loves to taunt us with our past will bring those things to our mind at the most unopportune times. But we just go back to scripture and we say, Lord, you have forgiven, you have forgotten. In fact, I bring this sin back to you and you say, I don't know what you're talking about. We remember. So if you're struggling with, I don't know, something that the enemy has on you that he reminds you of periodically, take it to the feet of Jesus I oftentimes will say, um, I'm sorry, but my Jesus has forgotten that, and so I choose to as well. And so I think sometimes we just have to be so dogmatic, like, no, um, I have chosen, I have taken that thought captive, that memory captive, and um, as quickly as it's there, it is a choice, our choice, to get rid of it. So when that comes, do away with it. You have victory over the enemy. And that means in our spiritual life as well as in our thought life. We have the power over the devil. So take the power that has been given to you. Amen? So to review, Jesus' sacrifice is better because it takes away sin. And then number two, it does away with repetition. But third and finally, it makes a way. And this is where we're going to camp for the rest of the time because these scriptures are amazing. Verse 19. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated, consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh and having a high priest over the house of God let us draw near with a true heart in I like this is an underline in my bible full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering that's our verse for he who promised is Faithful, and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as in the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. This is a long chapter, by the way. If you, <laughs> if you didn't, um, it's a long and meaty and good chapter, but here's the bulk of it right, right here. I mean, here's the diamond in the rough, if we're going to say that, but it is... Um, such a blessing to know that we not only have access, but we have access boldly, that we can come in at any time and we don't come in crawling. Well, sometimes we do, but we come in boldly and we, and, um, and confidently. So the writer here is seeking to encourage the readers, not just to go into the Holy of Holies, but how we are to go in. And we are to go in boldly, which means confidently, courageously. And it also means, and I like this, willing to take risks. I like that. 
Do you take risks for the Lord? Are you willing to step out in faith even if you fail? Are you willing to be courageous for Jesus? Are you willing to try something new? Are you confident, not in yourself, but in him and who he has made you to be? Are you using your God-given gifts for the Lord? Are you willing to speak out in his name, share about the great love of Jesus Christ? And are you willing to enter in behind the veil boldly? Guess what? You can do all of these things. You know why? Because 2 Timothy 1.7 tells us that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of sound mind. Amen? That is how we go in. We go in confidently, we go in boldly, we go in without fear, and we go in in the power and love of Jesus Christ. There's no fear in Jesus, ladies. There's only faith. Fear and faith cannot reside in the same room at the same time. Fear is the enemy, and it has the potential to paralyze us. But faith is from God, and it has the potential to propel us. Faith is our platform as believers, and we, what we do with faith really will determine our effectiveness here on earth while we're here. We can be confident in this very thing Philippians 1.6 tells us that he who has begun a good work in us will continue that work or complete that work until it is brought to completion, or another translation says, until it is brought to perfection at the day of Christ Jesus. The good work is continuing here on earth in and through us and through our process of sanctification. We're learning, we're growing, we're becoming more bold in our faith, we're becoming more confident as we spend time in the word, as we're in prayer, as we're in fellowship, we're gonna get to this in a moment, as we're cultivating our life in Christ, we're growing. I firmly believe that half the battle in our walk with the Lord is identity. (laughs) We are an identity crisis. Learning who we are in Christ is half the battle, isn't it? It's like a teenager. And those of you who have kids that are teenagers, um, they go through an identity crisis, even with the Lord, like trying to figure out who am I in Christ? And some of your kids may learn a little earlier uh, who they are. They may discover, I should say. Uh, But some, it takes a little longer to discover their identity in Christ. We, you know, hang on to our our, uh, parents' coattails and and, you know we think that that's going to take us into the kingdom of God but at some point somewhere along the line there's the age of accountability where that is we don't know I believe it's different with each child honestly but teenagers go through this time in their life 
when they try to figure out who they are, who am I and who am I in Christ, and some even be able to begin to question their um, salvation or who God is, and all trying to figure out, be encouraged, moms, if you go through that with your kids, um, don't be too hard on them. Just help them and pray for them. I remember Pastor Chuck even said he went through this period of time where he questioned God. And, and it brought him full circle. And look, you know, look what it brought us. <laughs> we wouldn't be here today, um, standing here, if it weren't for him and the Lord bringing him full circle. So be encouraged. But I do believe, especially being that I have three of them, boys, they go through a big, this um, difficulty in time because they are going to provide for a family. So they not only go through, who am I in Christ, but what am I going to be? And how am I going to do this? Where women have a little different identity crisis. Um, so let's pray for our kids. Let's not be too hard on them. Let's encourage them and cultivate them and point them to Jesus and pray for them as they are figuring out who they are, who they are in Christ. So we are to become followers of Jesus. Our identity is in Christ. We are to enter in with boldness. We are not to be timid, but we are to be tenacious. We are to go in, to keep going, to continue going, and not to give up. We um, can be a bit cowardly at times, right? Instead of courageous. I mean, there's, we're learning. We're in this process, again, <laughs> of sanctification. We're learning how to be courageous. But um, I love the story of Gideon in the Bible. I mean, that's, that's us. The Lord takes cowards and he makes them courageous and he does great things. He takes the unlikely and does the supernatural through them. So um, we are in good hands and we're in good company. So we just need to continue on that road and know that God is doing a good work in us. Amen. Well, we'll see many of these people uh, the next time we're together in chapter 11, which is probably hmm, one of my top chapters in the Bible, my favorite all time. I could talk about faith forever, so get ready. You'll be like, uh, I think we're done now. Um, it's probably my favorite topic uh, ever. I love talking about faith. We named one of our, we named our daughter Faith. We uh, have lived a life of faith. We have been stretched in our faith and still, uh, and it's just, I feel um, like the Lord has given me at times the gift of faith, uh, I just love faith. Obviously, I could. I love faith as much as I love Israel. <laughs> I love Israel. But faith is um, something we can't see. You can't see it. It's tested. It's tried. It's proven. But we can't see it. It's not tangible. We have to trust. So... We will look at many people who made big boo-boos, but God never in chapter 11 of Hebrews mentions their boo-boos or blunders. He only mentions their great faith. That's why I love Hebrews 11. So next time, Hebrews 11. So 
Jesus made the way where there was no way, and then he gives us boldness to enter into the throne room, and next the Lord gives us three commands. And he says in verse 22, 23, and 24, circle these, highlight, underline, let us draw near, let us hold fast, And let us consider. He made a salad for us. I had to just use that lettuce joke here. So let us draw near. Let us hold fast. And let us consider. Each of these lettuces hinges on the boldness to enter into the Holy of Holies. If we don't have courage, we cannot draw near or hold fast or even consider. So first we're exhorted in verse 22 to draw near, and he tells us how we're to draw near with a true heart that has in full assurance of, here it is, faith, in full assurance of faith. To draw near means to um, simply to come close to. We are to come close to, and then we are to come closer to the Lord. The Old Testament priests had to go through various washings and rituals and purifications, even applying blood on the Day of Atonement. And this is how they were able to draw near to the presence of God. They had to be clean, purified, and um, bloody, I guess, in one sense, in order to enter into the presence of God. As believers, we have been washed by the blood of the Lamb, which gives us direct access to the Father. But in order to come into his presence, we too must be clean by the washing of the word of God. As we're washed by the word, it's like spiritual soap. I use this illustration because I can't think of anything better. But it's like spiritual soap. It goes in and it cleanses us from the inside out, not from the outside in. It cleanses our heart. It cleanses our mind. And it cleanses our mouth, which makes its way out when it cleans the inside to our actions, where we go, what we do. Fellowship with God in his presence demands purity. The purer the life, the nearer nearer the fellowship. Likewise, the purer the life, the brighter we shine. I love, as we said last week, the illustration of the candle or the lampstand in the tabernacle. The oil had to be pure oil. The purer the oil, the brighter the lampstand could shine. Likewise, our pure our life, the brighter we shine, the closer we get. After we draw near, we're to hold fast, verse 23 says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. You 
Definitely need this underlined. You should all have it and memorized. Uh, underlined and memorized. Uh, this is probably one of my top 10 most quoted scriptures right here. Um, I have many of them, but I would say mm, maybe top 20. Nevertheless, it's up there. Um, I quote it often um, because it um, is so encouraging. We can hold fast the confession of our hope, which is Jesus, without wavering because he's faithful. He's faithful. To hold fast means to remain tightly secure. It means to bear down. It means to stay the course. What are we to hold tightly to? We're to hold tightly. We're told to hear the confession of our hope, which is what? Or I should say, which is who? Jesus. We're to hold tightly to our hope, which is Jesus Christ. Hope is the expectation of coming good. We are to have our eyes fixed on Jesus. We are to hold to Jesus securely and tightly and not lose our grip on him. Why? Because the writer knows something about us that we tend to to waver. To waver means to move unsteadily back and forth to exhibit uncertainty or indecision. Does that sound like anybody here? Does anybody waver? Anybody? Okay, we tend to waver. We do waver in our commitment, in, um, in our promises. We just do. We're flaky, right? At times we can just be flaky people. But the writer, who I think is the Apostle Paul, because it says he's in chains here, we'll see in a moment, but uh, he knows something about us. He knows that we waver, that that's our tendency to do that. So he encourages here. And, um, and also, um, another one of my favorite scriptures is 1 Thessalonians 5.24. He who calls us is faithful, who also will, anybody know it? Do it. Yes. I think that's one of my top 10, probably, maybe even top five <laughs> scriptures. He who calls us is faithful, who also will do it. Who does it? He does it. We don't do it. He does it. He is faithful. He does it. Doesn't that take all the pressure off of you? There are certain things that we need to do, but he's faithful, and he does the work in us. All we need to do is abide. We need to dwell with him. He promises he will do, do, will do it. He promises that he will complete it. He promises that he will bring us through, that he will provide for all of our needs, that he will one day take us to be with him because he is our hope and hope is the expectation of coming good and there's not a lot of good in this world, is there? Where is our hope today? Is it fixed on Jesus Christ? Is our hope in heaven? the fact that he's coming for us? Do we have the urgency of the return of Jesus Christ at the forefront of our mind? Our hope, ladies, is in nothing in this world. Our hope is in Jesus alone, amen? 
That's reason to rejoice today. We have this assurance. If we draw near to God and hold fast to our hope, and finally, verse 24 tells us that we are to consider, meaning that we are to look carefully, that we are to regard closely one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as in the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much more until we see the day approaching. Fellowship with God must never become isolated or selfish. Apparently, there were some Christians that were skipping out on church. They were skipping fellowship. And let me tell you that when you're not here, it's noticed. You may think there's so many people here, there's no way it's, you're, they're going to be able to tell if I'm here or not. We may not be able to tell if you miss a Sunday, but the Lord does. He knows when we're out of fellowship. And it's interesting to know that the emphasis here is not on what believers get from the fellowship, but it's on what they give, how we contribute to the body of Christ. I think we really underestimate the faithfulness of church attendance. When we're faithfully attending church, we forget that this encourages the body of Christ, that people see when we're there and not there, that people depend upon us to pray for them, to sit next to them in church. I mean, which people come to church and just want somebody to sit next to them? Many come alone, and they just want to feel like they belong, right? We can be those people. We can be the one just to smile and to say, how are you? And to just physically sit there next to somebody who's sitting alone. We forget how these little acts encourage the body of Christ. One of the strongest motives for faithful church attendance is the soon return of Jesus Christ. When we live with the urgency of the rapture of the church on the forefront of our mind, we want to be with our church family, right? Isn't that true? We want to be with them. We want to learn. We want to be close. It's like um, wanting to be with your family when um, you know something big is going to happen. You want to be with them. You want to celebrate with them. The same is true with us. We know that Jesus is coming back for us. And let me tell you, this is not being taught in the church anymore. The urgency of the return of Jesus Christ is not being heralded from pulpits. I recently um, watched a message from somebody that um, it was actually was a female teaching the church body. Um, I just wanted to see. And she was talking about the five-year plan. And I thought, oh my goodness, I'm like on the five-minute plan. Like, like, can you really look five years ahead? No. Like, why would you want to? They were talking about all this stuff and church planting and this. And I was like, whoa. Like, I would never want to encourage my church to look at the five-year plan. My, my women, I should say. I 
I'm so blessed that from this pulpit that our pastor teaches, be ready, in season, out of season, when we wake up, when we go to bed, Jesus could come today. And that's why we gather together. It's exciting to be with the body of Christ. It's exciting to encourage one another, to stir one another up. You know that I was a cheerleader, right? <laughs> I'm not cheering anymore. I'm cheering you gals. That's, and I cheer my husband. I tell him I am your greatest cheerleader. I cheer you. From the sidelines, I don't do what I used to do. No more flips for me, people. (laughs) So we want to use our gifts to motivate others as well. Each of these three commands seems to be dependent upon each other. Draw near, hold fast, consider one another. Stir each other up. The fellowship is important. Don't forsake it. So these three commands result in three great Christian virtues. And we see them, and I, I know your Bible study pointed it out, verse 22, 23, and 24, faith, hope, and love. Upon this, our um, life in Christ is built. Faith, hope, and love is what keeps us going as the church and as individuals with Without faith, hope, and love, we would be faithless, hopeless, and unloving, wouldn't we? We'd be a mess, basically. And much like the world, we would be a lot like the world. But we want to encourage one another to have faith, to have hope, and to be loving. And we're called to be different from the world. Verse 26 tells us, For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will be He be thought worthy who was trampled by the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the Spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. This is probably why June didn't want this text. Yeah, wow, wow. Here we see the fourth of five exhortations in the book of Hebrews. It's written to believers and it follows in a sequence with the three other exhortations. If you recall, back in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, we saw the first exhortation, in which was... Um, not to drift from the word. And then in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 to 4, verse 13, we saw the exhortation of not doubting the word. And then the third exhortation found in Hebrews 5, 11 through 6, 20, was the exhortation of not to be dull in the word, which results in where we are today. 
Hebrews 10, verse 26 through 31, despising the word. Drifting leads to doubting, leads to dullness, leads to despising the word. The evidence of this despising is willful sin. The tense of this verb indicates that Hebrews 10.26 should read, for if we willfully go on sinning, we all sin, right? The key is that we are not to do it willfully, meaning continually or knowingly. In other words, we are not to continue in a state of sin. In a particular sin, or in an attitude of sin, which then leads to disobedience. Or in this case, where the name of Jesus is being trampled, or the blood of Jesus is being cheapened. Under the old covenant, there were no sacrifices to atone for deliberate and willful disobedience or sin. Those who fell in this category were executed. But if a Christian behaves in a rebellious manner, what happens with them? Well, we're told in Scripture in the Psalms that the Lord chastens those whom he loves, right? They can expect a severe chastening. And we'll talk more about this in chapter 12. But the bottom line is that the Lord is patient and he is long-suffering. And he is not willing, we know, that any perish, but that all, and all means all, come to repentance. So Hebrews 12, verses 6 and 7 tells us, For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and he scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as sons or as a parent would, right? Which of us as parents haven't had to chasten our children and correct our children? You have to. It's a requirement. We, and, and the same is true with the Lord with us. He loves us. He's patient and he's long suffering, but there are times where we need to be corrected. And at some times it is severe correction or chastening. Well, lest his readers become completely discouraged and misinterpret his words. The writer shares some final words now of encouragement, believing that those that he was writing to were true Christians. He switches now his pronouns. He switches from we in verse 26 to he in verse 29 and those or them in verse 39. From we to he to those. He switches now indicating that he's speaking of other people and not of them. But he is using this as a warning for them. As he concludes this chapter, the writer confirms that believers 
have a high and holy calling. And he encourages them by recounting some of the trials that they had come out of and the progress that they've made. Verse 32 says, But recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with suffering, partly while you were made a spectacle, both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. Choosing Jesus for these Hebrew believers was not easy, and they knew that it came with a cost. And it would mean that they would have to endure great struggle. It meant that they would be separated from their family. It meant that they would endure suffering, disgrace, shame, criticism, rebuke, harassment. But the writer reminds them of what they had come through, the former days, he said, saying in verse 34, for you had compassion on me in my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise for yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, and we'll continue in a moment. So we see that these trials that the believers have in their life produced faith in their lives. It produced endurance in their lives. It produced compassion. It produced joy, we're told. And confidence and courage. They had experienced a great transformation and the writer encourages them to keep going and not turn back. John Corson used to always say, when you don't know what God's doing in the present, look back on his past faithfulness. And it's so true. When we don't know what God's doing, when we don't understand, look back on how faithful the Lord has been to you in the past. Has he ever left you? Has he ever not provided for you? Has he ever forsaken you? The key, ladies, is keeping our heads above the ground and keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus. Corey Ten Boom used to say, look around and you'll be distressed. <laughs> look within and you will be depressed. But look to Jesus and you'll be at rest. Where are you looking today? Are your eyes on your problems, on you or are they on your great high priest who is interceding for you even now? His plans, ladies, the Bible says, are good. He plans for you to um, have a future and to prosper. Do you believe that today, that the Lord has good plans for you? There's nothing for us in this world but destruction, as verse 39 tells us. It says, but we 
are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. Do not look back, because if you do, you will be in danger of going back. Instead, look to Jesus and walk this life of faith. To walk by faith means to obey the word of God and to live a life that is pleasing to the Lord. It means believing what you cannot see and trusting that God is faithful and true to his promises. We can be confident today, ladies, that if we walk by faith, that Jesus is leading us, that he is guiding us, and that he is the one that is perfecting us because Jesus is better. He is better. He is better than the angel. He's better than the law. He's better than the old covenant. He provides a better sanctuary. And as we learn today, he provides a better sacrifice. His death does three things. It takes away, it does away, and it makes away. Amen? We have so much to be grateful for. Let's pray. Lord, we do love you and praise you and thank you that you have taken away our sin. You have done away with the sacrificial system, God, and you have made a way to the Holy of Holies, to the throne room where we can come boldly, God, to the throne room of grace where we have access, God, and we can obtain mercy in our time of need. Lord, would you encourage your women today to get into the presence of God, to dwell there, to have faith, to continue to endure, to continue to look to you, God, to have hope in you because you are coming soon. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.